This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. Each semester, the Department of Humanities and Communication at Trine University presents the Humanities Symposia. This symposia is a lecture series in which faculty in the humanities and guest speakers share their current work both with students at the university and with members of the community. Jeanette Goddard is a professor in the Humanities and Communication Department at Trine. Her PhD is in Comparative Literature and her research usually focuses on early modern drama. She gave the second symposia this semester entitled Stories We Tell, Women in the Past. Hi everybody. It's nice to see familiar faces and some new people as well. So how many of you have taken or are in right now a Humanities 203 class? Right? So that's part of this story that we tell kind of narrative. So regardless of the special topic or theme of your seminar, they're all organized around analyzing stories, thinking about how we tell stories, the impact that stories have. And these stories encompass a wide variety of types, right? So some of you are in probably the fairy tale, some of you are in the monsters, you're in space, I know you're in space. Um, so all sorts of different stories. Some are more conventional, right? Once upon a time stories, but they're all about how the world works, your place in the world, how to be successful in the world, or even imaginary possibilities of what the world might be like. So these symposi this symposium is related to the seminar with the idea of storytelling. So we're gonna have a couple of these every semester like Dr. Mayus said, and they're gonna directly address a particular story that we tell or is told to us that we hear over and over again. So today, the specific story we're gonna talk about relates to women in the past. And I'm gonna do a bit more reading than I usually like to do, but you know, it's been one of those weeks. Do you guys, anyone else have one of those? Yeah, okay. So for those of you in public speaking, don't do this, just saying. <laughs> All right, um, so me and many of my colleagues in the Humanities and Communication Department hear in classes quite a bit a phrase or a kind of story that goes something like this. Women in the past weren't allowed to work outside the home. Or women in the past were never allowed to have any control over their own lives. Women in the past couldn't make their own decisions. Women in the past, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So we hear this quite a bit when we're talking about things. So we're gonna examine the accuracy of this story and then think about what might be the effects of the fact that we continue to repeat this, right? That it keeps coming up and that even though some of us who know better continue to have trouble like dislodging it from our brains. So that's gonna be what we're focusing on today. And there's gonna be, like I'm gonna really like brush the surface of some of this stuff. So if you find any historical figures that are interesting or literary figures that are interesting, you can kind of talk to one of us and get some more information later. So that's my caveat. So let's start by thinking about some specific women in the past to test the theory about what women in the past were actually like. And I wanna give credit to Dr. Mayus here since all of the information about women in the medieval period comes from her. Um, and I also wanna thank the other Dr. Goddard for finding all my slide images 
and like appropriately cited them. So moral of the story is find medievalists and make friends with them because they are awesome. So the first historical woman we're going to look at is Marjorie of Kemp. She dictated the first autobiography of a woman that we have in English. I know that doesn't look like English, but it is. Trust me. Um, and if you want to know more about how that became what we speak today, sign up for the English language class next semester with Dr. Mayus. So while Marjorie Kemp couldn't write well enough to actually pen this, she did take charge of it. So she rejected the first draft as being subpar and then found a new person to take dictation for a second draft. And through her writing, we learned she was a businesswoman in her own right early in life. She worked as a brewer, so she brewed beer. And later on, she had a religious epiphany and very publicly went on pilgrimages. She got in trouble for preaching despite being a woman. So, right, this narrative of like, they weren't allowed to do things. Well, sometimes women just did it anyway, right? Um, and then she eventually convinced her husband to live in a celibate marriage when she thought that's what God was calling her to do. So she definitely lived a public life outside her home. And we still have evidence of what she did in the manuscript. Here is another woman, Ju um, Julian of Norwich. So she was a Middle English mystic and she became an anchoress, which is basically someone who decided that they were gonna live in one place and they kind of got walled up in that place so that they could live a life of prayer and contemplation. The problem with being walled up somewhere is that you also can't escape when people come to you for advice and spiritual guidance. So it's not as private of an experience as we might think it is. Basically, people kept coming to her and wanting her advice on how to live a spiritual life. And so she became a spiritual teacher of sorts. We also have Queen Emma. Any Emmas in the room? Did you know there was a queen named Emma? She was an old English Anglo-Norman queen. She was queen of England, Denmark, and Norway through her marriages, and was the daughter of the Norman ruler Richard the Fearless and Gunnar. After her husband's deaths, Emma remained in the public eye and continued to participate actively in politics during the reigns of her sons, which you can kind of see here. In 1035, right, so we're talking like medieval period. Like, what is that? 1035, almost a thousand years ago? Woo! Um, when her second husband, Snoot, died and was succeeded by their son, how do you say that? Do you know? Harth Nakut. Harth Ah, nice and loud, Melissa. Uh, Harth Knut. Very nice. Thank you. <laughs> so he was in Denmark at the time. Emma was designated to act as his regent until his return. And a regent is someone who would actually basically rule, right? So she was in charge. And she did that in rivalry with Harold Herfoot. She's the central figure within the Encomium Emea Regina a critical source for the history of early 11th century English politics. So she's enough of a figure that she, she kind of gets noted for being like, hey, she's pretty good at this stuff. She's pretty good at this being in charge, good at ruling. We also have, this is probably one you're more familiar with, Joan of Arc, right? You've all heard about her a little bit. So she led the French army in the 100 Years' War 
She led them to military victories that ended up resulting in the coronation of Charles VII of France until she was captured and executed by the English um, at the age of 19. So not only was she a pretty important historical figure, pretty important in military battles, she did it all before she turned 20. So some of us have some catching up to do, I think. Um, and in addition to rallying the troops, she also wore men's clothes and was declared a martyr about 25 years after her death. And then in 1920, ended up being canonized as a saint. Right? So we have this, again, breaking a lot of the stereotypes that we might assume of women in the past. Queen Isabella, the first of Castile, she ruled over a unified Spain with her husband, who was the king of Aragon. And actually, like, they were separate rulers in their own right, right? She ruled Castile, he ruled Aragon. It was the first time we had a unified Spain, but she was actually the powerful one. Castile was much, much more powerful, much more important than Aragon. So she cleverly negotiated her ascension to the throne. That is an interesting piece of research you might do to see. It was, it was a little bit of a mess. And she like pleased every party. And they were all like, oh yes, we're perfectly happy that instead of us being rulers, you're the ruler. So clever, right? Um, she reorganized the government. She lowered crime. She completed the Reconquista. We're not super happy about that. The Reconquista was basically kicking out all the Muslims and Jews. But again, right, even though what she accomplished might not be something we're fully on board with, the fact that she was able to execute such a large military endeavor, maybe not what we usually say about women in the past. Um, and then she set the stage for Spain to be a major power in Europe during the early modern period. And she looks super happy about that, doesn't she? Yeah. We also have Queen Elizabeth I. So this is like getting into my stuff. Um, so we have her here. One of the reasons I love this picture is it actually shows in some ways how powerful she is, right? If you look at all the men, um, Knights of the Garter, and like she's, she's the one in charge, right? So she ruled for 44 years and was an incredibly powerful woman. And while she would often talk about herself as a ruler rather than a woman, her subjects were very aware she was a woman and like she basically controlled all the things. As a monarch, she was also the supreme governor of the Church of England. So she was head of the state, but also head of the church during those 44 years. There's also Sor Juan Inés de la Cruz, and she was an accomplished author in the Spanish Americas, what is now Mexico, in the late 1600s. Because of her accomplishment, she was called the 10th muse during her lifetime, which is quite a compliment because there are only supposed to be nine of them. And her nuns' quarters became a salon for New Spain's female intellectual elite, which basically means everyone who was anyone wanted to go visit her and kind of talk about important, big, philosophical stuff. And even now, her works are seen as proto-feminist. So she, if you read her writings today, you'd think like, it, it'd feel very modern, because she writes about education rights, she writes about women's religious authority, and she advocated for women. So those are some historical examples. Let's take a look at some fictional examples. 
one of the reasons that fiction can be helpful is because historical figures give us like a specific person to like latch onto and we can learn the dates and the facts. But sometimes fictional representations can let us know what was in people's imagination at the time. How did they think about women in general? What was okay to portray about women publicly or in writing? So we're gonna start with, you're gonna laugh at this image. It was the only one Eric could find. Um, <laughs> yes, I know, it's not the best. But it's also a really awful movie, so don't, read Beowulf instead, don't watch this. Um, but we have the old English fictional example from Beowulf. So it's easy to assume that the queen and Beowulf is kind of like not very important because she goes around serving everybody and like giving the men the food. But if you step back, which Dr. Mayus is good at helping us do, and look at the cultural background, you can see that she actually is in that serving, she's actually pretty powerful because the order in which she serves the men determines their rank. So she's basically giving men power or taking it away based on the order that she serves them. She also quietly, right, very subtly, shuts down her husband when he's getting a little bit carried away and starts to maybe promise Beowulf an adopted place as one of his sons, which Right? puts her own sons at jeopardy, in jeopardy for being able to like, ascend to the throne. Um, so she comes over, she praises Beowulf, and then she also like, reminds her husband, like, you have some other sons, maybe you're going a little bit too far. Right? And it's effective, it works. We also have in Chaucer, this Canterbury Tales, The Wife of Bath. Has anyone read Wife of Bath stuff? Some of you have, some of us, us nerds are like, yes! Um, hilarious. I, I dare you to read The Wife of Bath's tales and think women in the past were dot, dot, dot. Like, it is startlingly modern and a little bit body and super fun. Um, so she holds her own against the men in her life and against all of the other men who are on the pilgrimage with her and is a character that's so quick-witted and lively that she continues to draw admiration for her, I don't know, sassiness? Would that be an accurate description? Um, so we have that presentation of her in this text. We also continue to have the presentation of strong women in early modern drama. This is one of my favorites. Um, so the Roaring Girl, there's a common presentation of cross-dressed women in the early modern period, and I think this one is the most subversive. So Maul, who's a character in The Rolling, Roaring Girl, is actually based on a real historical figure, Molly Frith, or Maul Frith, who lived in London at the time. And she actually dressed partly as a man, partly as a woman. She ended up on the London stage, which was technically illegal, but again, sometimes women don't like follow the rules. Um, she ended up in prison for it for a little bit, and I don't think that bothered her too much. But in the play, we see her pushing against the men, getting what she wants, and she ends up like basically being in control of her own destiny in a way that, again, the stories of women in the past don't always show. In addition to Maul, a lot of the city comedies at this time had wives, and they, the portrayal of the wives were that they were in control of their family's money they actually ran their family's business instead of the men. Um, and so it's interesting to think about what 
that portrayal was like on the stage, right? If you're performing that to hundreds and hundreds of people, there's got to be some piece of truth to that. Or at least it's familiar enough that people aren't like, that's a fiction. That's weird. And then Shakespeare doesn't have many plays that have lives in them. Um, oddly, mothers are kind of absent. But the one that he does is actually set in England as well. And that's The Merry Wives of Windsor. So it has two wives who spend the entire play basically tricking their husbands, and then they get rewarded for it. And they're definitely the smartest, most interesting figures in the entire play, I would argue. What do you think, Rachel? Rachel's like, yeah. <laughs> She's like, absolutely. So those are some fictional examples. But you might be thinking, OK, you've given us some historical examples. You've given us some fictional examples. But the exception proves the rule, right? These are all exceptional figures, maybe women in general really were this way, and then these were just like really amazing people. Well, in the old Norris period, women were expected to be advisors for their husband. So Tacitus, a Roman historian and politician, he talked about how the northern, quote, barbarians, which, would you take issue with that? That's why it's in quotes, yes. Um, the barbarians troubled to listen to their wives, go figure. Households were also often organized around farms that would belong to one family and employed several people outside the family, including women. So when a husband left for a long time, right, they'd go trade or they'd go be a Viking and pillage and do their thing. Um, the lady of the household would take over management of the farm. And that was more than just overseeing the things that we might imagine, like food prep and like making sure everyone is safe and warm. It also involved hiring and firing workers, keeping the inventory, basically being the business manager of the farm. And then, right, now we're going to go a little dark. So we've had a lot of examples of like exemplary women who are doing other things. But then there's also this other side of women who were oppressed in really different kinds of ways but it also doesn't fit the narrative of like women were never able to work outside the home. Women, right, were stuck inside the house. And so we see that. We know historically there were millions and millions and millions of enslaved women in the US. We know that they worked. They worked harder than a human should have to work. And yet, somehow when we tell the story of women in the past, we don't think about them. We also had female factory workers, so the textile mills during the Industrial Revolution in the late 1800s. Those factories were primarily run by women. Again, another really dangerous job. And then we also have all the lower class women who worked as domestic servants, right? Think Downton Abbey, or maybe I'm I'm probably dating myself. You guys don't do Downton Abbey, do you? <laughs> Give it another 20 years, and you'll be like watching PBS like the rest of us, I promise. Um, but thinking about the women who cleaned the houses, who ironed the clothes, which was really physical work back then, right? Has, has anyone ever had to wash their clothes by hand? A few of us? Like, it's not, yeah. It, talk about building muscle, right? And then you also had women who worked on their farms and kind of helped with the pioneering, even in the US, right? 
So this idea that women didn't work or didn't work outside the home doesn't really seem to stand up. So what do you think? Enough examples? There are more, right? <laughs> Everyone's like, mm. well, it is, we are getting there. <laughs> more examples. So let's, let's think about this, right? As we start looking at this history, as we start looking at these literary representations, as we start looking at these large swaths of women, we start realizing, okay, there's not actually a monolithic past. So we can't look back and be like, women in the past, because now we're like, well, which women? Like the women in the medieval period who were in the Old Norris, the Romans, are we talking about like the people who were the rulers? What about the people who were, right? We start to see like that becomes really problematic. So there's no monolithic past. Um, the question is, what do we really mean when we say women in the past? And what often is coming to mind is this, right? So this is kind of the 1950s image of what a woman's life looked like. So take a minute and think about this. And as you're thinking about this, hopefully the many, many examples I just gave you are kind of pushing against this a little bit and being like, well, this is just one historical moment, right? So the story about women in the past raises some questions as to why the 1950s, why this image has become a touchstone for so many of us as the past. So according to PBS's American Experience, Mrs. America's role in the 1950s, that's the title of the show, um, US women felt tremendous social, societal pressure to focus their aspirations on marriage in the 50s. This was, this was a new specific thing for the 1950s. The US marriage rate was at an all-time high. Couples were tying the knot on average younger than ever before, right? My students who take Shakespeare with me, they're always surprised at the average age of marriage for someone in Shakespeare's England. The average age for a woman was 26, right? That was not the case in the 1950s. Our idea of how early women in the past got married often goes back to the 1950s. Um, so getting married right out of high school or while in college was considered the norm, and it was the era of the, quote, happy homemaker, right? So domesticity, and domesticity just means being at home, creating a home, really focusing on things related to the home, was idealized in the media. Women were encouraged to stay at home if it was financially possible, and women worked when they didn't need the money or were assumed to be selfishly putting the needs of themselves before that of their family, which we can see just as we look at this advertisement, right? A cluttered house equals a cluttered mind. Ugh. My goodness, my house must be, my house and mine must be very cluttered. I don't know about you guys, right? Um, but what's so interesting about this is that it highlights, this is an advertisement. This is also a story. Right? And if what the PBS advertisement is saying is uh, domesticity was idealized in the media, this is media. 
right? So this is presenting an idealized story of what women at the time should want, not necessarily what things looked like. Um, so if the 1950s was actually exceptional, right, in how much it was trying to keep women in the home through cultural messaging, it becomes even more interesting that this era with its particular brand of sexism has come to represent the past. And one of the reasons that this always resonates so much with me is, right, both of my grandparents, both my grandmothers were like alive at this time and they both worked, like they worked hard. And so it always kind of struck me as a little weird when people were like, in the past, women didn't work. In the 1950s, they didn't work. And I was like, but they did. Some of them did, right? So a century of change, the US labor force, from 1950 to 2050, they take this comparison, right? They look at the 1950 number, and they say 37, 34% of US women were in the labor force. And then in 2000, 60% were. Why are they looking at 1950 as the starting point? It's really interesting. If you start researching this, when we start comparing where we are today, it's almost always, the data is almost always starting with 1950. So we have this interesting question of whether the story that we tell about women in the past came first and then the data, like people decided like, oh, we're gonna look at the data based on what we think the past looks like, or whether it's the reverse. Right, we had the data and then we started telling the story. It's worth thinking about. And it isn't just our stories that start here, right? So then I gave you this information. And then there's also like less, I don't know, data-based stuff that happens here. So we have this marketing piece that is compared with this on a blog, right? And it's talking about women of today versus women back then, right? Pretty stark. And again, we think, okay, for young mothers in the 1950s, domesticity was idealized. And what this blog says that's comparing this to this is recently we came across this article and then we'll get to that in a minute, discussing what marriage in the 1950s was like, and after giving it a read-through, we couldn't help but laugh and cringe a little at how different things are today. What they don't seem to realize is like, uh, this is fiction, <laughs> right? This is a marketing campaign. This isn't actually an image of what a woman actually looked like. You can't tell me, like, as much as you want, like, I know that women in the 1950s often wore dresses, but like, you can't tell me that they actually vacuumed in those shoes. That would be nuts. <laughs> you saw that and you're like, mm. Also, not real, right? We know, we know this is an actress. She's actually playing a role. So we're starting to see here there are lots of stories that are kind of underpinning some of these assumptions that we're making. Unless you think I've been unfairly picking on like people in general or students with like this narrative, scholars also have trouble with this. So again, thanks to Dr. Mayus, strong female characters are not uncommon in early medieval literature, right? So we have them in Brynhild and the Volsunga saga, Gundrin and the Laxdala saga, and we also have historical moments, 
of these strong women. However, the idea that women were taking on stereotypical masculine roles in medieval Norse world is something people have been slow to acknowledge. So we have it in the fiction, and the literary scholars know, but other people have been a little bit resistant to it. So in 2017, the American Journal of Biological Anthropology reported that testing the genome of a warrior buried in a Viking-era grave in Burka, Sweden, revealed that the warrior in question was undoubtedly a female. That a woman would be buried with a warrior's grave goods, right, sword, tackle, um, isn't surprising to anyone who's read Viking literature, because they're a little bit all over the place, but the warrior had been previously classified as a male. And this is the interesting part. She was assumed to be male, even though an earlier osteological study, which was like based on her bones and her bone structure, had classified her as female. So despite data to the contrary, scientific data to the contrary, they had decided she was a male. Right? This is how persistent these narratives are. Despite facts, like, no. We're going we're gonna to go with what we thought before. So apparently even those who should know better don't. So the question I want you to think about is if our narrative is about women in the past, and we know that's not true, why do we keep telling that narrative? What are we not seeing because of it? So here we could talk about wage inequality, the data on the amount of unpaid labor. There's all sorts of things. But in some instances, it's actually a matter of life and death, right? So let's think about maternal deaths. Although most are preventable, maternal deaths in the US have been increasing since 2000. <coughs> it's actually, compared to other high-income countries, we're at the bottom. So when we say this story about like women in the past were we can think about, okay, what aren't we seeing? Why is someone telling us this narrative right now? What's the context? <coughs> so what I would encourage you to do, this is the conclusion, so you're like, we're gonna, we're gonna get done, <laughs> is one, be skeptical when someone tells you this, or when you hear it coming out of your own mouths, because like, it comes out of my mouth too, right? Um, be skeptical about the phrase, the past. Because history isn't monolithic. And monolithic means like all meaning the same thing, right? It's very, very different moments, different cultures, even different subcultures within the culture, right? Just as we wouldn't say like women today, because we all know that there are women who are exceptions. Always been that way. The other thing is ask yourself why the person's interested in thinking about the past, right? What are they implying about now with that phrasing? So when I went back and looked at this article that that blog was quoting about comparing the past to now, it was definitely like, shut up and stop whining, women. Things are great. That was definitely the tone. I was like, oh, that's awkward, <laughs> right? And that's not always the tone, but it's worth thinking about. And then finally, what important things might be happening right now that if we keep telling the story, we're not going to pay attention to? Because these stories do, right? Like if we, if we have scholars who have studied for years and should know better and have the data of bones, and they're like, yeah, no, definitely still a man. 
Like these are persistent. And so it's, it's interesting to ask, okay, how might we like push against these narratives ourselves? And we're done. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.